Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Butts and Guts. I'm your host, Scott Steele, the chair of colorectal surgery here at the Cleveland Clinic in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm very pleased to have Dr. Vera Huperts here, who is the Executive Vice Chair of Pediatrics. She's also the Pediatric Institute's Vice Chair of Quality and Safety and the Medical Director of Pediatric Hepatology and Transplantation here at the Cleveland Clinic. Finally, she's a Clinical Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Case Western Reserve University. Vera, thanks so much for joining us on Butts and Guts. Thanks, Scott. I'm happy to be here. So we always like to start a bit with our guests to tell us a little bit about yourself. So since this is your first time here on Butts and Guts, where are you from? Where did you train? And how did it get to the point that you're here at the Cleveland Clinic? Oh, that's great. I think it's a good story, actually. I grew up in upstate New York, Albany, New York, to be exact. Um, went to school there at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and then went to medical school at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. Headed west to Cleveland, did my residency and fellowship at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. And while there, I met my husband on a blind date, no less, uh, who fell in love with him, and we got married. But he's one of those born in Cleveland and will die in Clevelander. And so here we've been. Not that I have to say I regret that. I love Cleveland, love being here. And when I started working at the Cleveland Clinic uh, 20 years ago, it has been a great experience for me. And we're so glad that you went out on that blind date. So for our listeners out there, <laughs> so for our listeners out there, give us a little bit of an overview of Cleveland Clinic's pediatric liver transplant program. Yeah, so Cleveland Clinic has been really on the cutting edge of liver transplantation uh, since the mid to late 80s, 1980s doing many adult transplants as well as starting to do pediatric transplants at that point in time as well. Currently, uh, we have a really strong program. We have four board-certified transplant hepatologists who are basically, myself included, gastroenterologists who have demonstrated uh, expertise and additional training in uh, liver transplant and therefore liver patients, specifically liver disease in children. And We'll be joined, actually, by our fifth transplant hepatologist in August, and at that time, our program will just be building and building. We have three primary transplant surgeons who do the pediatric cases, Dr. Hashimoto, Quintini, and Ekdasad, uh, who are amazing. They have amazing skill and expertise. Not only do they do the pediatric transplants, but they participate literally in dozens of adult liver transplants on a yearly basis. So they have they bring all of that experience as well to our pediatric liver cases. And in addition, they're supported by incredible surgeons such as yourself and the rest of the surgical services at the Cleveland Clinic. So there's no end to the expertise that they have. Our transplant center cannot be complete without mentioning our coordinators who help our patients navigate through the process of listing transplant and in the long-term follow-up. In addition, we're supported by dedicated social workers, dietitians, pharmacists, infectious disease experts, and psychologists who are all trained in pediatrics as well as the needs of the transplant patients. In the hospital, we're covered by every subspecialty service in pediatrics who can assist us if the need arises, in addition to our incredible intensivists in the critical care units there. 
Well, what an incredible team you have. And so let's delve right in. And so for our listeners out there who may not be as aware, what are some of the most common liver diseases that your program treats? Yes, so we take care of a lot of patients with biliary atresia, which is the most common cause for liver transplant in children. This is a disease that presents within the first few weeks of life, generally with jaundice, which is yellowing of the skin and of the whites of the eyes. There is surgery that is indicated for this disease, but it often doesn't work. It generally will slow down the process, but eventually transplant is needed in probably about 80% of them by the time they're 20 years of age. So the majority will need a transplant eventually anyways, many of them in the first few years of life. We also uh, transplant a lot of kids with metabolic diseases. This is where the body is not making the right proteins or chemicals to help the body function appropriately and or the liver to function appropriately. Some of those diseases are things like alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency or Wilson's disease. And then probably the third most common cause we see for liver transplant in kids is fulminant liver failure and very very often we don't understand or don't have a good reason why the liver suddenly fails, but because of that rapid failure, it can lead to coma and death in the child if it's not recognized quickly and treated with liver transplant quickly. Then we often see, you know, in our teenage patients, we probably see a lot of the same diseases that our adult colleagues do, uh, such as autoimmune diseases, autoimmune uh, hepatitis, and sclerosing cholangitis, and also drug reactions um, that can lead to liver failure either due to sort of a bizarre reaction to the drug or due to overdoses. So you mentioned jaundice. What are some of the other symptoms that a child may have that could mean that they have a liver disease? Yeah, symptoms, and I don't want every parent to go rushing out there thinking that their child has liver disease, but they can be pretty vague. Uh, sometimes it can be due to tiredness or excess sleeping. Uh, kids, when their liver is not working properly, can have a loss of appetite. Uh, they can, it can result in poor weight gain or slow, uh, slowing down in the growth of the child or even a change in the school performance. So symptoms can be vague, but, you know, you can imagine that these symptoms can be due to a lot of other diseases and disorders as well, or even just to rapid growth. Um, so it, it really takes um, a lot of expertise to try to figure this all out and suspicion. Then there are, there are more obvious symptoms like jaundice, the yellowing of their eyes, um, but a lot, sometimes the kids can present with excessive itching, and that's due to too much bile acid in their blood. One time I had a child sent to me from a dermatologist because the child was just itching so much, and it turned out they had a disorder called allergies that resulted in that itching. Sometimes they'll have pain in the right upper side of their abdomen, uh, and then in later stages of liver disease, sometimes they'll present with confusion uh, and even sometimes coma if it's a severe, really an acute process, which is happening very uh, quickly. So truth or myth, there are different treatment options for a child with a liver disease than there are for adults. Myth. Uh, of the diseases that are common in both children and adults, like the autoimmune diseases or viral hepatitis, the treatments are generally the same. Sometimes in pediatrics, we're limited if the medications are not necessarily approved yet by the FDA. 
But usually if there's a strong need for the medication, we can get it approved and treat the child if necessary. The differences, though, are where our diseases aren't the same as what the adults see, like some of the metabolic diseases or uh, the biliary atresia, which adults don't really see. So in just overall kind of 50,000 foot, when is a liver transplant required? It can't be that all of these diseases, uh, you have to jump right to liver transplant. There could be some medical treatment options for them. When do you say this is a liver transplant candidate? One of the major reasons we see for transplant in children is because the liver is not supporting the growth and natural development of the child. If it's really pushing them back and they're not developing, you know, in those critical years of their lives, and it's because the liver is not doing what it's supposed to be doing, then we would recommend a liver transplant. If the liver is slowly deteriorating, it can sometimes result in increased pressures in the belly that can lead to poor blood clotting and can lead to bleeding, and that could be a cause as well for a liver transplant. And some of those children are at risk for increased infections, which can, you know, result in repeated hospitalizations, and then obviously a a transplant would be the way to go for them. Sometimes the symptoms themselves are so horrible that the child's quality of life dictates the need for a transplant. Uh, Itching is one of those reasons. Uh, Sometimes we see these children with scratches all over their bodies. They're bleeding from the scratches. They develop infections in the skin. Sometimes the children are, you know, depressed and not even eating and drinking the way they're supposed to be. Uh, So we would actually transplant those children, even if their liver is not absolutely failing, but because their quality of life is so horrible. And then in the fulminant cases where the liver is basically dying right before our eyes, we need to transplant those patients very quickly at that point in time. Vera, I'm going to walk through some terminology that may be very confusing to the listener out there. And if you could just kind of tell us as a broad overview what these are, that'd be great. What's the difference between a living donor transplant, a split liver, a reduced size liver, or a whole liver transplantation? That's a great question. So let's start with a living donor liver transplant. That's where we take part of the liver from another uh, human being Often this is a living-related donor, so a parent or a sibling. They have to be over 18 to consent for it, but we can take part of their liver. Usually it's a smaller part of their liver since it's going into a child, and we can place that into a child. The wonderful thing about the liver, which is different from many of the other organs in our body, is that it can regenerate. So if we took part of my liver, I won't donate yours, but we'll take part of mine and give it to somebody. My liver will regenerate to what I need it to do for my body to support it. And that can happen pretty quickly within literally weeks to a couple months. And then that piece of liver that we transplanted into the child will grow to fit their needs as well. Historically, we've done that with living related donors, like I said, a family member. But a lot of times, If the family member is not able to do it, sometimes we've had neighbors volunteer or other church members volunteer, and we've had anonymous donors um, who have volunteered to be on a list to donate part of their liver for a child or for another adult even. Then the second type of transplant you mentioned is the split liver transplant, and that's where we take the what's called a cadaveric donor, so somebody who has died 
and they can split that liver into two pieces, whereas one piece will go into a, usually a child, and the other larger piece will go into an adult uh, recipient. And that way, two people benefit from one liver. Our surgeons are very good with this approach and really uh, try to recommend that because of the potential shortage of liver donors out there. This way, two people will benefit from one liver. And then in what's called the reduced size liver transplant. So if we have an organ being uh, donated by somebody who has died uh, and, you know, we're not able to split that for one reason or another, we could take that whole liver, cut it down along appropriate lines to a smaller size where it will be more compatible with the uh, abdominal cavities uh, in a child. We can't take a huge adult liver and put it into a child because that would be too much pressure on that liver when we try to close up the uh, child's belly. So we have to cut down the liver into a more appropriate size for the child and along with the blood vessels and so forth, and we can actually get really good results with this as well. And then lastly, you could take a whole liver from another donor and put it into a child or another adult, obviously you need to have appropriate size matching. You, again, you cannot put a huge liver uh, from an adult into a child. So unfortunately, you'll have to take either a very small adult, put it into a child, or even another child that may have died and put it into another child. I can only imagine that facing the possibility of a liver transplant is scary for adults, but when you add in that the pediatric aspect of what you do, that can be quite overwhelming. So for our listeners out there, can you walk us through a family's journey with your pediatric liver transplant program? How do they get in touch with you? What's the first appointment like? And what can that family expect moving forward with future visits and follow-ups as their child grows? So a lot of times the... Um family will get in touch with us through their own gastroenterologist or through their pediatrician who may refer them to us. If they're still looking for other options, they can find us through the website um, and find our telephone number and or contact us literally through the website itself. Then we will usually set up a first appointment and at that first appointment, they'll always meet with the transplant hepatologist. The reason for that is we are well-versed in all the different diseases that children can experience affecting their liver. And there have been occasions where people may have come to us for a liver transplant, whereas we will find that, well, you know, maybe there are some other treatments that are available or some other options for them. And there have been times where even though they thought they needed a liver transplant, we've been able to turn around their disease process where they didn't need a liver transplant. So I think it's always important to meet with the uh, transplant hepatologist. At that visit, they will meet with our coordinator as well. And if we all are in agreement after reviewing the you know, prior records, the biopsies, the treatments, et cetera, that we should proceed with a transplant, we'll set up a meeting with the transplant surgeon as well. That could actually happen at that first meeting, sort of a meet and greet, if you will, to meet the, the majority of the team. Once there is agreement that, you know, that a transplant needs to be done, then numerous appointments are, are made, and those are for blood tests, for x-rays, for 
CT scans for various imaging, as well as meeting the rest of our team, which includes the dietitians, the social workers, the pharmacists, the psychologists. And our coordinators are really good about trying to combine all those visits so that the families don't have to make numerous trips back and forth to the hospital. You know, about the time of this taping, we're dealing with coronavirus being as a daily part of our lives. So how has that affected liver transplant, and what is the Cleveland Clinic doing in order to continue with this program but ensure safety? Yes, we're trying to do everything we can to protect our patients and protecting our caregivers as well. So we are all strongly encouraging wearing masks for our patients, uh, being uber-sensitive about you know, hand hygiene and cleaning all surfaces between patients. When this all developed, we've reached out to all of our transplant patients who are out there and those who are awaiting transplant to give them recommendations of how to protect themselves, you know, how to protect themselves at home whether it's, or at school when school was in session and also even at work since many of these young people may even have jobs you know, looking at their jobs and trying to help them negotiate whether or not they should continue working or whether they should be on, you know, laid off at the further present time and working from home as much as possible. We have had some success with virtual visits, but because, you know, examination of the liver is really an important part of our follow-up exam, we really do need to lay hands on those bellies to really feel the liver to make sure that they're not suffering any consequences after their transplant and make sure everything is uh, great. So in-person visits are still the best. And as a result, you know, working with our nurses, our medical assistants, with our schedulers and everybody else, making sure we're all up to date and trying to keep close eye on, on each other to make sure we're staying as safe as possible and keeping our patients safe. So I think, you know, we have done the best we can to minimize exposure of our patients. Uh, They should feel safe coming in. They certainly feel safe calling us and asking us for advice and giving them the best recommendations we possibly can to stay safe during this time. So what's on the horizon as far as liver disease and transplant research to help combat or even improve the quality of life for children diagnosed with liver disease? Well, certainly, you know, um, with regards to liver transplant, I think, again, Cleveland Clinic is on the cutting edge. We're trying, you know, come up with better ways to keeping those livers that are being donated healthy before they're even transplanted in the patient. Dr. Quintini is working with specific perfusion techniques that are being piloted at the Cleveland Clinic to keep those transplants uh, transplanted livers healthy before they're even placed in the um, patient. Uh, Dr. Hashimoto and his team are working with uh, living donor protocols where we're actually doing the donor surgeries by a laparoscopic approach, basically to very small incisions and taking out the liver to be given into a pediatric patient. As a result, the donors have a, well, a much shorter recovery time and they're able to get up and moving and back to work or discharge from the hospitals a lot sooner. This is especially important in pediatrics where very often the donor is a parent, a mother or father. Historically, they would have to stay in the hospital, be 
you know, on bed rest for a few days. They wouldn't even be able to hold their child after their transplant surgery. But now with this minimally invasive approach, they can literally come over, hold their baby after the transplant, and it really is a great improvement in the care and getting these families back together again after the transplant. And since it's all done on the Cleveland Clinic campus, it's much easier to do that, you know, literally walking down the hall practically. And then in the future, in the pipeline, I think for a lot of our metabolic diseases, we're seeing a lot of new agents coming up, you know, to treat some of these genetic diseases and these metabolic diseases so that we may never even need to get to the transplant scenario. Things like alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, these diseases may be treated by gene therapies that uh, will help these kids in the future. So we'd like to end up with all of our guests to know you a little bit better with some quick hitters. So first, what's your favorite sport? Oh, volleyball, without a doubt. And what's your favorite meal? Oh, my favorite meal. Um, Our favorite meal at home, which is like our uh, just feel-good meal, is barbecued ribs and macaroni and cheese. Those two things, they go together. (laughs) That's wonderful. So what is the last non-medical book that you've read? Well, is it medical or is it not? It's It's a book called Stiff, and it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but a lot of interesting points about what happens to bodies after we die, specifically bodies that are given up for research or uh, donated for further study. And it's a really good book and it's fascinating. And finally, what is something that you like about living here in Cleveland? I just love the, um, my family does this a lot, hiking in the Metro Parks. And uh, there's the Emerald Chain around all of Cleveland with Metro Parks in the various counties as well as in Cleveland itself where you can go hiking and you feel like you're out in the wilderness, most beautiful wilderness in the world. It's, it's wonderful. And so what's a final take-home message for our listeners regarding pediatric liver disease and transplants? Yeah, I think... Uh, Families need to know liver disease is often treatable, and um, it takes really an expert in dealing with this who's been around for a while, who, you know, have the expertise to uh, treat these illnesses, as well as, you know, needing a team approach uh, to taking care of the patient, both before transplant and if they need a transplant, after a transplant as, as well. That's the most important thing. Well, that's fantastic. And so for more information about Cleveland Clinic's pediatric liver transplant program, please visit clevelandclinic.org slash pediatric liver. That's clevelandclinic.org slash pediatric liver. And to make an appointment with a transplant center specialist, please call 216-444-1976. That's 216-444-1976. And in times like these, please remember it's important for you and your family to continue to receive your medical care and be rest assured that here at the Cleveland Clinic, we're taking all necessary precautions to sterilize our facilities and protect our patients. Hey, I really appreciate Thanks so much for doing this and taking the time out. Thanks, Scott. Anytime. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.